This is Through the Pines, a financial planning podcast with a down-to-earth vibe even Sasquatch would scare the poor trick-or-treaters for. We are back again, and we have a scary good Money Moves podcast for you uh, this evening. And so uh, this podcast episode, this one's a fun one because we get to talk about issues, like real world issues that people are having. And so these are uh, I hear their client issues. And so we have Rex Baxter, Brandon Smith, Dan Nelson. You can hear more about uh, these financial planners at planwithbaxter.com or look that up if you would like some more information on Rex, Brandon, and Dan. Let's jump right into some of these cold cases. Uh, da, 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 da. Scary good money moves. What are we doing? Okay, so here's a scenario. I've been working with the government entity and they are not paying into Social Security. How in the world does that work? Who does? Wait a minute. Is that that's a thing? That is a thing, Brandon. It's yeah. So this is my favorite time of year. I must say, spooky season, Halloween season, and so we're really excited to to do this podcast today and kind of look at at different client um, concerns, issues, things that we've been working on for for a little while here in the past, and so. All, everything will remain nameless and and yep. so but yeah there there's a lot of people that work for the government for different areas of the government whether it be law enforcement whether it be the railroad whether it be different areas that 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 particular government entity um, does not pay into social security and and that's because they have their own pension plan or their own retirement plan and they've received exemption from the government and so they pay directly into this into their own pension and retirement plan. And because they're not paying into Social Security, that reduces the benefit that those employees will get from Social Security because it's not getting paid in. So the government exempts the government. Uh, now, Brandon, uh, you're going to start a conspiracy theory if we're not careful. I'm so. just asking. The question. <laughs> <laughs> but it makes sense. They can do what they want. They're in charge of themselves, I guess. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah. so, so there's different government programs that are out there to where they'll have a government pension. And so this this last month or so, we were working on a particular case um, with a with a set of clients, and and so lots of times when we're going through financial planning, we'll have clients pull up their social security records, right? And so they can go to ssa.gov or myssa.gov, create a login, they'll ask you your security questions. And you can go back and look at all of your earnings history from the first time that, that you received W-2, um, which talk about spooky season. I went and looked at what I earned when I was in high school and you know, you and I were, were climbing, Brandon. Was it 350, and, 375 or 425, something like that was minimum? Yeah, I think minimum wage was four and a quarter back yeah. then. I, I mean, Dan, my Dan, what was minimum wage when you started in the business? I believe it was two two dollars and twenty five cents, but I could be wrong. It wow. was less so, than a quarter. I know that. Yeah, so it's, uh, I mean, <clears throat> that's that's interesting. So so it went from you know two dollars. I, I remember when my dad was young and and you know not young, but but just getting married. I think minimum wage was like a buck fifty or two bucks at that time too. So, so anyhow, minimum wage has increased over the years. Mm. As you go to that social security website, you can look at all of your earnings history and see what's been paid in, how much you've paid in, how much your employers paid in social security and, and double check to make sure that your earnings record is accurate because, you know, believe it or not, we find that sometimes they, they've made an error. 
or sometimes something hasn't been reported correctly on your social security earnings record. And, and that can have an impact depending upon how misreported it was or how big it was that can have an impact on your social security. So, so with this particular client, we went back and looked and, and they, they had social security earnings for a couple of years, then a lot of zeros, and then a couple more social security earnings for a couple of years, and then a lot of zeros. And then the last couple of years, they've got a couple more. So they've, they've actually qualified for a social security benefit at this point, but they've also qualified for this government pension as well that they get. And so because social security and the government doesn't want you to double dip into social security benefits and the pension, and then they, they came up with this program a number of years ago called a windfall elimination provision or a WEP for short, mm-hmm. a WEP. Yeah. Um, everybody knows about this. Everybody's heard about the WEP, right? <laughs> so <laughs> that's a different, that's a different podcast. Yeah. Uh, maybe, maybe that's a different podcast. So, <laughs> so the windfall elimination provision. And so, you know, what we have to do as advisors, we have to go through, figure out what their pension estimates are, which lots of times the government won't give you until you're close to retirement. So lots of times you can't get a government pension estimate until you're, you're over 60 or you're, you know, within a year or two of retirement. So we get the, the pension estimate and then you have to go through and input all of those earnings history for those people to find out how much of a reduced social security benefit you're going to get. So in this case, you know, when they just received their statement and said, oh, I'm going to receive $2,000 for instance in social security. And so they were taking that at face value and, and kind of planning on that for retirement. But then when we got into it, the reality was that because their government pension, their social security benefits getting reduced by almost 50%. Mm. And so they're not really getting 2000. Social security is gonna reduce that down to a thousand in this example. And then that gets added to their windfall elimination program of, of their government pension. And so in this particular situation, that may put off their retirement date by two or three years that they need to work because now they're not going to get that extra $1,200 or $12,000 a year of social security benefits. So it, it's a big deal. It, I'm not sure what percentage, I probably should have looked that up. I'm not sure what percentage of the population this program affects. I had heard numbers around 20%, but, but you know how statistics are that most percentages are made up on the spot. And so I'm not going to go with that. There's a hundred percent chance that that is true. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) This is why you listen to podcasts like this, because who the hell knows about the windfall elimination provision? Honestly, Dan, you've been in, in the, the industry, you know, longer than the rest of us by a year or two. And so how, how frequently have you come across something like this or even your, your clients getting a government pension and paying attention to social security and what they're going to get. Very seldom, actually. It doesn't happen very often, but when it does happen, it's very important, especially to that particular client. And so when we went through this with a, a client, Rex and I went through this with a client in Brandon, we, uh, we uh, pointed this out, talked through it. We're still talking through it, trying to determine what, what do we do from here and how do we look at this going forward as far as maybe upping the savings rate maybe working a year or two longer, maybe looking at lifestyle. And so it becomes an interesting conversation, something you need to know about 
way before you get a month from retirement. So in this case, we're in good shape that way. Uh, I really like this next, this next question because it involves cash and a lot of it. So the question would be, I have a large amount of cash. How and when do I get into the market? Um, I think we had a rough last week or two. So, you know, what, what is dollar cost averaging? I mean, I know what it is, but let's remind people versus lump sum. What's the best way to do it? And why does this person have a large amount of cash, most importantly? Brandon. We don't ask questions. Um, <laughs> that's, that's not true, part. actually. <laughs> that's scary part. Here's the good part. <laughs> Just kidding. We do ask questions. Okay. Um, but but uh, no. So so there there's the thing called dollar cost averaging, and and dollar cost averaging helps is highly beneficial, especially when you're contributing to four hundred one k's. And 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 essentially, in a nutshell, what it is is. If you add a set dollar amount, let's call it $100 every month to an account, what's going to happen is as the markets go up, right, if if it jumps higher, you're actually going to buy fewer shares while the market's high. But then at the same time, that same $100, maybe the next month if the market drops, you're going to buy a significantly more amount of shares. And so as the market goes up and down, up and down, even if the market stays flat, and it's just going up and down, up and down, up and down across the line, and you're adding a hundred bucks, even if the market doesn't end higher than it started, your dollar amount actually, I, I mean, it, it increases, right? Because of dollar cost averaging, your average buy-in price per share is less than it would be if if you had bought, you know, the same amount of shares. Does that, does that make sense? Yeah. And I like the phrase that, um, you know, Tesla's on sale. Or something, or whatever. Yeah. You know, so um, you're you're buying in when when something is lower. It's easier to digest instead of saying, "Oh, I'm losing money." It's like, well, you're getting these on sale. That assumes that later it'll be worth more. Right. Right. No, that's exactly. It's it's a perfect way to help our human psychology that wants to buy high and sell low. It helps us automatically. This dollar cost averaging. You know, over time, we're going to end up buying more shares at lower and less shares at higher. And so dollar cost averaging is a very beneficial and, and important part of, of, of most financial plans. However, the question becomes, if you you come across a large amount of money um, for any number of reasons, legal, of course, but if, if you come across a large amount of money and you need to invest that in the market, how do we do it, right? Do we dollar cost average that in over a year and put, you know, a 12th, a 12th, a 12th, and, and we just add it in? Do we put a bunch, just all of it up front, or do we do, you know, segments? And 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 the answer to that, Brandon, I think you'll like this, is, is it depends. Oh, I love that answer so much. Yeah. <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> but there, there have there have been, I, I was reading a paper where they said, you know, it, it, it obviously, it depends on what the markets are going to do, right? And hindsight's 2020. Unfortunately, we don't have a crystal ball. However, assuming that the markets are typically steadily moving upward, it actually usually makes sense from a, a statistical standpoint to actually take that lump sum and put it in all at once. Would you do that like tomorrow? You know, tomorrow would actually be a good time <laughs> to do that with the market. Yeah. But, uh, but uh, it, it's, it's harder. That's easier said than done, right? Just because the emotions of taking a, a large sum of money, dropping it in the market, 
And then, you know, the next day, of course, you're going to watch what the market did. And if it's down 3%, you're going to say, what on earth did I do? And so sometimes with clients, we'll, we'll kind of split that up and we'll maybe put in a large sum now. We'll wait a month, wait a couple weeks, wait a couple months, add another portion to just to help the emotional aspect of it. But statistically speaking, if your stomach can handle it, a lot of times it makes the most sense to put it in all up front. Now, Obviously, it's good to consider what markets are doing, momentums, things like that. But but I think as far as a general topic, that's a really those are some good things just to think about. Dan? Yeah. One of the things I think about uh, having to do with do I invest now or do I invest in a dollar cost averaging or do I uh, you know invest a little bit at a time? A lot of that might have to do with your age also. Uh, if you're if you're early in life and you've got 20 years or 30 years uh, before you're gonna use that money or need that money, there's nothing wrong with getting that money invested because over a, a period of time, uh, you're, the markets are always going to do better than, than just sitting in cash. Where did this lump sum or large amount of money come from? I know there was a lot of people in uh, uh, February of uh, 2020, uh, towards the end of February, were scared to death. And uh, a lot of people were liquidating everything out of the market or trying uh, at least taking some money out of the market. Some of those people never got back in because it went up so fast. And so that money might be sitting there on the sidelines. One of the things that I've noticed over the years in my experience is the best time to put money to work is when you least want to. And when the fear is the highest, that's usually, uh, I, I, my gut reaction is when the fear is the highest, that's the best time to start putting some money to work. In other words, if you've got a large amount of money and the market's down 10 days in a row and you're saying, wow, I am scared to death, that's usually a good time to put 30% of that to work and then wait and see what happens. If it goes a little bit lower, then you put another 30% to work. And then eventually that, that market's going to come back up. Dan, what are you seeing right now? How are people feeling as of October 5th, 2021? I think there's a lot of fear out there right now. I think everybody is a little bit concerned about all the money that's being spent by government. Uh, the fact that uh, the, the stuff going on in, in Washington, D.C. is not good uh, on any, either side of the aisle. And uh, a lot of concern over uh, rapid, uh, what they look at the gas pump and they see how much gas is. They look at the, the grocery store. They look at the real estate to buy a home or to look at a lot. And they see the prices of some of the real estate around, especially around Utah. Um, and other parts of the country. I think there is a lot of fear going on right now. So it's a time when um, the markets have, have not been straight up over the last six months. In fact, there's a lot of sectors of the market that have, that have had a correction. And so it's a good time to be looking at that and determine based on your age, based on your investment experience, based on your objectives and your risk tolerance, uh, how do I get back into the market with some cash that's on the sidelines? Yeah. And then, Dan, you touched a little bit on inflation, and that's the scary part. Can inflation be be good for your investments? Or is there anything good from to come out of your uh, to come out of inflation? Maybe. In my experience, if 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 inflation hits us very fast and very hard, it's not good. It's not good for anybody or anything. If inflation is projected and it's coming out over a period of time, and showing up over a period of time, and rates are moderately going up in a, in a relatively easy manner, um, 
there is certain assets that will do better with, with inflation. Real estate type assets uh, do or perform better with inflation, where bonds might not. Uh, some stocks uh, where they are dividend paying stocks, they might perform well in inflationary times. That's again, the most important thing is to get a financial planner and a good investment uh, professional to help you with those types of decisions. Yeah. All right. Anything else on inflation? I mean, it's inflation has been a pretty popular topic right now. Uh, I, I, what's it called? The, not the cost of living. What's it when you make money and, but the money, your income goes up. Um, it's not keeping up with the cost of living right now, whatever, whatever that is. So, uh, Brandon Rex, you have a comment on that? I would add on, on top of, of Dan and echo him, right. That we had a great example of rapid inflation back in the early eighties. Right, Dan starting his career back then, and you had inflation hit record peaks to where you're dealing with mortgage rates of 16% or 17 or 18%, and and CDs and savings accounts and bonds are paying you 12, 13, 14% in those instruments. But it but it raised so rapidly from the late 70s, from 78, 79. It started with kind of the oil issues back in the late 70s, and then it it went and and just took off and, and increased all the way through about 84, 85, before it kind of started to, to at least flatline and, and may reduce a little bit. And, and when, if you go through a period like that, it is devastating because the, your income doesn't keep up with it. And so, you're, you know, all these goods and services are increasing so much faster than your income that then your standard of living just decreases significantly. I think after that time period, you know, we went through a number of ups and downs in inflation that they were very moderate and very mild. So a lot of people today, especially kind of the millennials, the X generation, they don't really have that history or that knowledge to, to kind of rely on. And so they're very scared of high inflation rates. But if inflation just kind of kind of slowly increases and, and the Federal Reserve is successful in trying to moderate that, which they have a checkered past, right, as far as being successful at that or not. But if they're successful at being able to do that, that inflation is not necessarily an all bad thing in moderation because that that will increase the investments that will increase you know the the real estate and, and a number of those other assets because the the profit margins kind of sit on top of that but if you're not investing in in any of those instruments then it can be painful because you know you, you may or may not have the wage increases significant enough to keep to keep up with that and so i i think you know, that the inflation question is a great question. I don't think anybody can predict the future as far as what's going to happen. We're hearing a lot of opinions about what's causing the inflation today. How long is it going to last? How fast is it going to go? And and you can just about find an opinion to support anything that you want to right now in, you know, through through your reading. And so I think you need to read both sides of that, not panic, you know, and, and get back into that kind of behavioral finance that Dan was reference, referencing earlier as well, in that, you know, Warren Buffett was saying that, you know, you want to be, you know, greedy when others are fearful and fearful when others are greedy. And that's probably the truest behavioral finance statement that's out there that's still true today. It's one of those truisms. And, and people don't do that. And so because of that, they like Brandon was saying is a lump sum, you put it in and all of a sudden it drops by 3% or 5%. And, and they think, oh, that's Murphy's law, right? I put the money in next day, it's going to go down. And so, you know, one of two things are going to happen. Either I'm going to panic out and sell because 
I feel like I made a rash decision or I'm going to end up riding through it and regret that decision. And that can influence your future decisions on how you handle money. And so I think it's important for people to take a step back, think about what the real purpose of the money is and, and think about when am I really going to need it and making sure that they structure their portfolios in a way that they always have a place to pull from in the times when they think that they're going to need money. And, and I think that that's something that people aren't really paying attention to. And I think it's easy to get lulled to sleep over the last decade of a rising market to where they're probably taking more risk today than they realize. And whenever, if the market does roll over, because they're taking more risk, that's going to be more pain along the way. And so I think it's it's important that people constantly evaluate the, the aggressiveness of their portfolio and their money as, as they're looking at whether they're putting new money to work all at once or over time. So, Brandon, do you have uh, some more numbers on this, by the way? I do. I do. Yeah. And be, but before the numbers, I'm going to a little cliffhanger. Just kidding. But but I think adding to what Rex says, we can't predict the future. However, we can do a fairly decent job stress testing your plan against the future, right? Looking at your plan and saying, what happens in a high inflationary environment, right? How do your different assets react and, and act? And, and and so often people are terrified of inflation when, when you know, there's some good things that come out. Your, your home values go up. Does your mortgage go up? No, right? Does your income go up? It, it should. Right. And, and so so it's not all bad. It's just important to make sure we understand which asset classes really struggle. And those are typically cash derived asset classes. So cash in the bank, CDs, fixed income, bonds, things like that. Um, now to the more numbers. More numbers. All right. Speaking of cheap, cheap money. So, so the yield on the 10 year Treasury note closed at one point three oh three in end of August of this year. So one oh, yeah. point about 1.3%. That's oh, yeah. up from 0.913 as of the end of, of 2020, but the all time low was 0.5. So about a half 0.501. That was, you know, in the middle of this, the, the pandemic. So March 9th of 2020. So um, I don't know. There's a huge lot of takeaways from that, but it is, it is kind of interesting you know how low rates were and then they dropped even lower and and so they're now still fairly low yeah rex yeah so i, I that's a great small numbers but so brandon and i didn't talk about this before but i think it's really interesting to know that there's four countries out there right now um and there may be more but there's four countries out there right now that have a negative yield on one year money and two countries out there right now that have a negative yield, actually three countries have negative yield on seven year money. So you tie your up your, your money up in a seven year bond or a seven year CD. And if you're tying it up in France or Germany or Japan, you're guaranteeing yourself a loss of principal in so those why, countries. Yeah, why would why the hell would you do that then? Like what so so you wouldn't, right? And yeah. so the money, you know, right now, believe it or not, the US of the developed countries out there has one of the highest yields on one year money. And and I would let you guess, Brandon, but I'm not sure that you would guess what the yield on a one year money right now on, on a government bond is right now, but it's 0.08 in case you were curious. I would not have guessed that number. 
no. So it's pretty low uh, also, what, as far as that happens, goes. Um, I don't think it'll happen because we always figure it out a ways. But what happens if we default on the debt? Does that affect that? Absolutely. Yeah. So that that would affect a lot of things in the economy if if people around the world felt like the U.S. was not going to pay on their debt. And that's what the big concern is about the national debt right now. Yeah. Right. Is is it's growing at such a pace is are we going to be able to continue to pay the interest payments on that national debt? And and that's what the concern is. I heard. And so at like some point it's got to get coin or something to just make it all go away. I can't mint a coin. You can't to no. do that. No. <laughs> so I did hear there's the mayor in Miami and there they have like Miami coin or something and they are raising funds for the city and it's just like a digital currency that they're using to fund the city. Yeah, so I've heard of cities doing that. I've I've heard of cities selling digital currency or cities selling, you know, different coins or things like that. Traditionally, a a city would sell a bond, right? A tax-free municipal bond or things like that. But because yields are so low, cities are trying to be creative and into how to raise funds for the needs of the cities. And, And I'm not sure that that's in, certainly in these manners, I haven't seen anything like that before. Um, certainly when with the creation of the municipal bond, that was something new at that time. And that's been, I don't know, 100 years ago or so um, since the creation of the of the municipal bond. And, and that was new at the time. But it'll be interesting to see because I think people that are buying that now are, are betting not necessarily on the credentials of the city, but on the credentials of some other asset to see if that will go up as far as that goes. And so it, it, it turns into, into a different kind of investing than, than what a traditional investor might be involved in. So super interesting though. Um, also this might tell you about the kind of TV I watch, uh, I get, uh, before we get there, this is through the pines and we were talking about scary, good money moves. These are actual like client scenarios. So I don't know why, but I, when I watch TV, I see a lot of reverse mortgage commercials, you know, also Cialis. So weird. Uh, but um, the reverse mortgage commercial commercials are saying, hey, you should take a reverse mortgage loan out on your home. When should you do that? Are they a bad idea? I think the answer to that is they're less of a bad idea than they used to be, but still a bad idea. I think they were a really, really bad idea back in the day. Now they're just, now they're just a bad idea. Yeah, but um, the person pitching it's famous. No, you're right about that. And, and so really when you're looking at doing reverse mortgage, we, we, we urge you to consider who is pitching it. Is that like a last, last chance deal then when you would use something like that as you're kind of out of options? Most people, yes. Most people, it, it's when, when you're, you know, you don't have quite enough money coming from retirement accounts, social security to really make ends meet. And you say, hey, you know what? I, I don't need to leave an asset to my kids. I don't need, you know, I just need to, get by and, or, or I want to, you know, maybe spoil grandkids or whatever and and be able to see that people will do that. I think the most important thing to remember on a reverse mortgage, which always seems to get overlooked is it is a loan, right? People say, well, you're pulling your equity out of your home. This is your money. And, and, and while it is your equity, when you borrow against your home, which is what a reverse mortgage is, there's a set interest rate. So each dollar that you pull out of your, against your home, right? Take a loan against your home. Every dollar that you borrow is, is starting a compounding interest that will go for the life 
of that reverse mortgage, you know, probably the rest of your life until that home is sold. Um, they build them, they build the reverse mortgages so that, you know, hopefully the equity in your home should outpace that compounding interest of the loan. However, it, it is a loan, right? And you have to understand that whatever money you pull out of a reverse mortgage, you're going to end up, you know, paying interest on. Very interesting. Okay. So you also, I was thinking, what if you don't like your kids? You just don't want to leave, leave them anything. So you're just going to you're going to take out a reverse mortgage. Uh, take that, kids. Uh, should have been right. nice to your old man or whatever, or, or mom or whatever. Um, okay, so this is interesting too. I mean, a lot of people are are sort are becoming more savvy with real estate, and they're you know doing ten thirty one exchanges. So maybe we can explain what that is real quick. But then also, if it's closing in on thirty days and they haven't been able to identify a property, now what? This is a case that came before us earlier this year. We were working with a client and, you know, they didn't wrap us in. So it's kind of a newer client. They didn't wrap us in right out of the gate as far as what they were doing and when they were selling their real estate. And so, you know, at at this point, when you, when you sell real estate, um, there's a, there's a tax code out there known as a 1031 real estate exchange to where you have the ability, if it's an investment property, you have the ability to roll your cost from one property to another of like kind without having to pay the capital gains on on that. So even though you're selling a property, an investment property, you're you're trying to avoid capital gains on the sale of that property because it's appreciated. And so through this 1031, you're you're allowed to do that. There there's a lot of rules that go into into play in 1031 exchanges. One of them is that you have 45 days to identify an exchange property from the sale of your property. So your money, you know, you, you sell a business building or you sell a rental property and your money upon that sale has to go to what's called a qualified uh, financial intermediary. So a financial institution, it's kind of like it's going into escrow. If you take possession of it, then then you have capital gains, you know, uh, immediately. And so it has to stay with this qualified intermediary. And then from that point forward, you have 45 days to identify a property. If you don't identify a property within within the 45 days and let that intermediary know, then again, you're gonna be subject to capital gains. And so in this particular case, we were dealing with significant capital gains. And so we're talking about, you know, that it, it, was, it was land, farmland that had been inherited uh, when he was a young man, and so he was he was about 25 when he had inherited it. Uh, you know, he'd inherited the value at that time might have been a hundred thousand dollars or so, and and here we are now. Um, you know, reaching in his 60s, the property's worth you know maybe three or four million dollars at this point, and so the capital gains from that hundred thousand to three to four million is significant. And so had he been able to identify a property within that 45 days, then we could have exchanged that and avoided all those capital gains because that's gonna be taxed at the highest capital gain rate, 20% um, plus the state income tax for the state that he lived in. And so he's gonna lose a quarter of that in taxes. Whereas we probably could have structured it to avoid that. You know, in, in this case, we could have, you know, probably gotten a step up at his passing and and avoided all capital gains altogether and all income taxes on it. And so that's that's you know probably about seven hundred thousand dollars 
in in taxes that he that's going to have to be paid now. And so that's nope. that's a tough pill to swallow. Yeah, don't wait. Uh, contact planwithbaxter.com and your CPA to figure out what you can do to protect yourself. I know I I was dropping off paperwork uh, at my CPA's office and there was a, an older couple in the office and and they had <laughs> I walked in at the moment where they were saying like I guess we got to pay a lot of money essentially like why is there anything you can do? You know, and then they left and the, and then my CPA looked at me and was like they inherited like millions. Like there's nothing I can do. Like there's nothing I can do. You know, like he's just doing the math. He's doing his job. So talk to a financial planner first and see, see if there's anything you can do to cut that off at the pass. Right. Yeah. I mean, it doesn't cost anything to, to have a conversation with us. Right. And so, you know, give us a call. Let's run through your situation and, and see what, what you're planning on doing. And then let's evaluate those pros and cons and see if there's if that's the best way. And it very well may be that that's the best way. Hmm. But if not, then let's know in advance so that we can plan for it and figure out what the best way might be for you. At the end of the day, it's your money and your decision. It's not our money. It's not our decision. But it's our role to make sure that you understand the pros and cons of your decisions so that you can make better financial decisions in the future than what you're making today. So. Okay, but what about a little bit of diving into other people's money? If you are a small business owner and uh, you have some employees you'd like to take care of, should you start a 401k or, or retirement plan for your business to help your employees? How does that yes. work? <laughs> yes. Yes. Right, next, next question. question. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so what, what would be bad about doing something like that? Because, yeah, it sounds like, well, yeah, you probably should. But why wouldn't you? Maybe the company doesn't make enough or not big enough? Yeah, so it's really not size of the company. It comes down to expense, right? That's always the question on a, on a business owner's mind. And, and so, you know, I, I, I had one recently where, where we looked, you know, we look at the full the full scope, right? We can do everything from a 401k flare down to just an individual IRA um, as far as, as what you want to do. And so it usually comes down to what what's the goal, right? Are we are we trying to save for your retirement as a business owner? And and if if so, there might be a couple, you know, paths that work well, or or are you trying to provide a benefit for employees? Um, if, if you're trying to provide a benefit for employees, but you're you're worried about the costs of that, you know, we can look at a simple IRA which, you know, the, really most of the cost is just, just simply that 3% match that, that you'll need to offer employees, right? So you take your payroll times by 0.03, find that 3%. And worst case scenario, if everyone participates and gets their full match, this is what you're out, right? All the way up to a 401k that has some administ administration costs, um, other things like that, but can be beneficial, right, to to allowing you to save more for retirement. That Roth 401k is really, really favorable. And so I think when it comes to retirement plans and, and deciding whether you want to start one or not to be more competitive in the workplace, whatever that reason is, um, it, it, there, there's so many options, so many different ways to set them up. And, and really a conversation is so easy to have. Like Rex said, you can call us. There's no cost for an initial consultation. And we can walk you through kind of the pros and cons of a SEP IRA, a simple IRA, a traditional IRA, a Roth IRA, a 401k, an individual K, right? There's so many different things that that probably should be a podcast in and of itself. But yeah, those are just kind of 
So that 3% that the company matches, that comes out as an expense for the company. So if you're cash flow heavy and you're just looking to expense a few things, that's an option, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. You could do that. But I mean, obviously we'd rather <laughs> just take it and pay a little bit extra tax on it. Right. If you're looking for, for, for more cash flow. However, a lot of times people, it, it's just nice to have a retirement plan, not only to say yeah. you have a retirement plan, but it helps employees feel like they're working, not at a means to an ends job, right. That they've got somewhere that this could be a long-term strategy for them that they can see retiring at down the road from that job and, and adding some sort of 401k or retirement plan can be beneficial that way. Well, that wasn't very scary, Brandon. That was pretty, that was pretty easy. <laughs> I'll come up with a more scary one. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So, uh, this is, this one's scary. I'm going to, I'm going to toss this one to Rex just cause, uh, I think you would appreciate this Rex. Guess what? What? You are, are being offered an early retirement package. You're oh, done. Thank You're you. Done. Yep. Thank you. You're going to take it. What am I going to do tomorrow? I don't this know. Comes back to, know. To Dan's, know. This comes back to Dan's question, right? Yeah. And, yeah. and that could be scary. That that could, that could can be scary. If all of a sudden you're working. Yeah, you're like, what do I do? Twiddle you're, the you're, thumbs. Yeah. Right. You're sitting here twiddling the thumbs. You're thinking, okay, you know, before they come into your office and say, hey, we want you to be gone tomorrow or next month or whatever the early out package is, <laughs> you know, you're thinking I'm going to retire in five years or six years. And so you kind of have this mental plan of, or, or you should be formulating kind of what this mental plan is going to look like. And, you know, the first week I retire, I'm, I'm going to go and put all those light bulbs in that I've been avoiding for, for the last week. And I'm going to fix my garage door. Maybe I'll weed my front yard and, you know, all these things that you've been putting off because you're too busy working, but, but that, you're done with all those basics in the first 30 days or 60 days. And, and then what? And so are you going to volunteer to charity? Are you going to travel? Are you going to do some sort of uh, religious mission? Are you, you know, are you going to drive your wife insane? Uh, you know, what, what are you going to do if you retire? And so, you know, we were faced with this with a particular client this past month. Um, there, there's a number of companies that are offering early out packages right now. And so it, you know, it's interesting. And so he, he was offered this and, and he's, he's about, he's probably about 60 ish years old and was planning on working for about another four or five years, but it was a fairly good package. And so in this case, you know, he's looking at getting income for six months as far as a, a severance package, healthcare benefits for a while. Um, you know, he'd get his vacation and sick time pay paid out to him kind kind of things like this. And, and this particular client, didn't need to work. You know, he could retire. He's in a financial position to where, you know, but I like what I'm doing. I enjoy. And that's what he would keep saying to me is I enjoy what I'm doing. And so what would I do? And and I think that then it becomes depending upon your financial situation, it becomes a, a psychological question for you as to what do you want to do? And, and, you know, some people don't have that option. Some people will be in the financial position to where, six months of a severance package. That's great. But I need five years of income, you know? Well, not that we're all professional athletes, but you know, if you're an athlete your whole life and then suddenly your career comes to an end and you don't know who you are anymore. And so if you're working in the same profession for so long, 15, 20, 25 years, and all of a sudden you're not, then you know, who, who are you? You know, you're, you have a little identity crisis. I would imagine some, something like that could happen. Yeah, I, I mean, Dan probably has a good perspective on this, right? Because he can he can choose to work for another five or six years, but it'd be interesting, Dan, 
probably not interesting, but, but what if the company came to you and said, Hey, Dan, we'd like you to retire next week. What would be going through your head at that point? Yeah, that is a, it is an interesting question because you, when you're in your thirties, forties, and even fifties, you, you spend your life saying, oh, I just got to get to 65, just got to get to 66, just got to get to 62 or 70, whatever the number is. You have a number in mind. My number was 65. That happened two months ago. And um, once you get there, you, you, and I've seen this with a number of people in my life, friends that are the same age as me that I went to high school with. Once you get to the point where you can retire, sometimes you don't want to. Now, I know if you're 35, you don't understand what I'm talking about. That doesn't even compute with you. But sometimes when you get to the point where you actually can retire and financially you're fine, sometimes you don't want to. And I see this a lot. So that's why I said earlier, uh, it, it's important that you have a plan, not only for a financial plan, which is really, really important, because then you have the choice whether you do or you don't. But if someone came to me uh, and said, I needed to retire next week, I would actually be upset about it because I am enjoying what I'm doing with, with my team here and with my clients. And, and I frankly don't think my wife's ready for me to retire. Uh, I don't think that she wants me here at 930 in the morning uh, in her space, you know, so and we've been married 43, 44 years. So you've got to have a, a mental plan in addition to a financial plan. And it, it really is a mental plan. And that's part of, of, of getting yourself prepared for retirement retirement 30 or 40 mentally. years ago like mentally prepared for retirement not yeah, just financially mentally yeah. prepared retirement 30 or 40 years ago meant that at 65 you quit working and you were done and 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 that's how most people looked at retirement retirement for the people that are my age doesn't mean you're you're done what it means is i'm going to do something else i'm going to do something fun i'm going to do something that i care about or a charity or a service or some other thing that I really enjoy may or may not get paid to do that. That's what retirement looks like, looks like for, for most of the people that I know and my friends that, that are at that age. Yeah. Brandon. Yeah. I just add to that. I think Dan's absolutely right about retirement age and, and getting mentally prepared for that. But in addition to that, spending has that same effect. I, I had a client over the last month, that uh that they had they were way in front of the eight ball they'd been saving they had saved their whole life like crazy and are still saving incredible numbers and and we sat down and reviewed their plan with them and i said look you've got to either spend less today and or, or or spend more today save less today go out and like live a little bit more or your retirement you're going to have to spend incredible amounts of money or we're just going to have to leave all this money you know down the road to someone you know choose or, or maybe we kind of blend all those together and uh and it was interesting talking to them several times after those conversations and and them just saying oh it's, it's just it's hard right it's hard to spend money now that we've been in this mindset of saving and, and building so much it was emotionally trying for them they wanted to i could tell but but it was also emotionally difficult to get behind this idea of increasing lifestyle today and so i think that's where financial plan is so financial planning is so valuable is that it allows you to get in front of these 
big life changes emotionally before it happens, whether it's for good or for bad, so that you can be prepared for them when they come. It is wild that uh, it's it's a problem I never knew existed, but there are people out there who don't spend. They save so much money and they don't spend. And there was a podcast, oh, it's the author of the four hour work week. And he had this guest on and the guest's job is to essentially teach people that it's okay to spend their money. That's okay. And then the other thing that I thought was very interesting is when Dan mentioned, yeah, you spend your whole life looking forward to 65 because you're going to do what exactly? Like you're going to, what do you, what does that mean? So you're going to retire and do what? So that means you hate your job the whole time. And then, so you're looking forward to 65 where you don't have to do the job that you hate. So that sounds God awful. So then, you know, why, why aren't we thinking about how we can improve the now while planning for later? You know, Rex, do you have a comment on that? Yeah. So I, so I think it's interesting because I, I'm going to, I'm going to flip that coin just a little bit. Right. So we had, we have another client that, that has done a phenomenal job of saving high income has done a great job of saving. And so we're talking, you know, that he's, he's making, you know, well over a million dollars a year for the last 20 years and, and saving good portions of it and, and things like that. He was probably spending, you know, maybe, maybe on average of, and this is, this is going to, you know, shock some people, but you know, maybe 20,000 a month um, on average kind of thing is kind of what his spending habits were. And so he would travel a lot. He, you know, had some expensive hobbies, things like that. And so, you know, here he, here he was turning 55 and he's thinking, I've done a great job saving. I have a high stress job, you know, high strung. I want to be done. And so we looked at the numbers and, and at 20,000, you know, we, we felt pretty good that, that that wasn't an issue for him to continue. Um, even if it ballooned up to 25,000, you know, that he would be in good shape. And so he retired. And, and then the question that Dan's talking about is, well, now what do I do? Well, what he did is, is his hobbies just went hyperactive, right? And so these expensive hobbies that he had took his spending within a year, took his spending from 20,000 a month to 50,000 a month that he's spending. And so, you know, after about a year and a half of that, we sat down and, and we're looking at it along the way. And along the way, I'm like, that's a lot more than 25,000 that we've kind of talked about and, you know, kind of holding his hand through that. And, and then it's starting to pay, play psychological games on him of, oh my gosh, I'm not sure I can rein this in because now I'm kind of addicted to this lifestyle. And so after talking about it, we actually had him go back to work um, at age 57 and, and get reengaged his, because he's so busy now with work, his spending has come back down. He's saving, and, and he's starting to kind of recognize some of those addiction habits as far as spending and hobbies and, and activities and things like that. But I think everybody is very, very unique um, as far as what their own habits are, what their biases are, what their background is, and, and how that's going to translate into, into, into living. Whether they've saved their entire life and so now they can't get themselves to spend, which is probably the majority of people or people that have pent up demand and haven't, you know, they've saved a lot and they haven't been spending. And now all of a sudden, you know, the, the barn doors open and they're going to spend everything they've got, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and so yeah. it's interesting. Everyone wants to win the lottery until they win the lottery. They don't know what to do. 
essentially. Right. And how many of those people, you know, go on spending sprees and are, are bankrupt, you know, three to five years later, you hear story after story because they're, they aren't savers and they have this huge lump sum given to them. And so it's an interesting stat that people that inherit money that aren't savers, aren't used to investing, um, typically the average inheritance lasts 18 months until yeah. it's spent. And it doesn't really amount to the dollar amount. It doesn't matter for the dollar amount. It could be, you know, $100,000, it could be $3 million. But if your habits are such that you are that you don't understand money and you're not used to dealing with money, then chances are you're going to blow right through it. Hmm. That's so wild. Okay, uh, any uh, anything else you guys have seen recently that uh, we should touch on before we wrap the podcast this week? These are scary, scary good money moves that uh, we've seen, like cold cases, like actual client issues that uh, you've dealt with. Dan? Yeah, it's, uh, I think it's important that as you think about this and you get to the point of, the, of this in your life that you and your spouse, uh, you have a plan together. Because I had a situation many years ago where uh, he, a client owned a company, did great with his company, made a lot of money. And his wife uh, was there at home raising the kids, helping to raise the kids. Uh, he sold his company, had plenty of money, and then come to find out that his wife was spending, which he had no idea, Fifty to eighty thousand dollars a month. It got to a point where it was two hundred thousand dollars a month, and uh, it it became a major stress for him in his life, and her also because he was putting pressure on her. But it was something she was used to spending a lot of money and not having a budget. So you need to have a plan. You need to work together as a, as spouses to make sure that you're on the same page with that plan. Yeah. Men and women think about money very differently, and that's okay. But you need to make sure that you're aligned as to what does it look like after retirement based on what we've done in our whole lives. Yeah. I, I'm pretty sure if I gave my wife $200,000 a month to spend, she would spend $200,000 a month. I don't know how, but she would figure it out, and it'd probably all be on the kids. Rex, you know how to spend. What Rex, what's it like to spend $200,000 a month? I'm going to Disneyland. Disneyland. I'm going- <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. So I have no idea what that feels like. I, I, <laughs> that's, a, that's a lot of those big turkey legs, right, yeah, that, that you get there. So, yeah, I, I don't know. The, the one thing that I do know is, you know, people never cease to surprise me at their innate ability to spend every dollar that they bring in. <laughs> so, hey, that's a skill, man. Yeah. 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 Mad, <laughs> mad talents. Yeah. And so I, I do think, you know, Dan, Dan brings up a big point. To high incomes because it's easy. It's easy to do when you don't make a lot of money. But when you're making so much money that you can burn through $200,000 a month and it doesn't break you completely. That is wild to me. Yeah, it's, it, it is because you think, well, how much stuff do I need? And, and lots of times they're chasing memories or they're chasing, you know, an experience or, or, uh, you know, it can become an addiction, right? Spending addiction and, and things like that that you have to be a little bit careful of. But I, I think it's, you know, th- they talk about the three most, common reasons for divorce, right? And money is right right there at the top of the list. And so I think if you're if you're not on the same page with your spouse, like Dan was saying, and, and you're not having those discussions as you're nearing retirement, it's easy to blow up re- a retirement. And and then you have resentment, you have hard feelings. You know, I, a, a number of years ago we went through this with a client and and here we are, you know, 
75 years old and we're going through a divorce after, you know, 45, 50 years of marriage, um, because all of a sudden they just have so much resentment to each other that they've started to deal with their finances completely independent. And it just became such a thorn that, that they just couldn't stand being in the same room as each other anymore. And, and so, you know, we want to be marriage savers. Can I say that? Um, you know, so, you know, but, but we want to, we want to sit here and just make sure that people are educated on, on not only how to handle your money and your investments and, and the planning, but sometimes we turn into counselors. I, I can't remember what your degree is in Dan, but there's a small possibility it could be in psychology and, and talking about, you know, the psychology of investing and, and how many times you're a counselor of of psychology as opposed to a money counselor wouldn't you agree that is correct that is very correct it's uh uh money uh, adds uh, you know help is very very important to people in their lives but next to that is uh obviously their grandkids because my grandkids mean more to me than anything uh, but uh, money is uh, right there too you know and it can either be a joy and a happiness in life if you have your priorities straight or it can be a major stress and a, a problem with your life if you don't. So it's very important to think through all of these things. Well, I really enjoyed this uh, episode talking to you guys, getting to know what you guys deal with on a daily basis. It's, it's super interesting to me. So if you have questions or you'd like to hear more uh, or chat with, get in touch with Brandon, Dan, or Rex, visit planwithbaxter.com. Anything else before we take off? I, I don't think so. Happy Halloween to everybody. Yeah. We love doing the podcast. We'd love to see your feedback either on the Facebook page um, or shoot us a personal email through our websites as far as that goes. I think the thing to take away from, from this podcast is whether you're dealing with Social Security and, and some unique aspect, whether it's being a widow, whether it's being the windfall elimination provision that we discussed, whether we're talking about you know receiving major lump sums or, or real estate exchanges, is talk to us early, make the call and have a conversation. Even though this is a scary podcast, we're not that scary. We're pretty approachable. We're pretty easygoing. And, and we would love to talk to you. Yeah. Except for your, your wife uses those, he buys those giant skeletons and puts them in the front yard. And that's kind of scary. <laughs> I don't know about that. Yeah. yeah our <laughs> yard is scary. And so, yeah, it's, <clears throat> she talked about addictions. So yeah, she's got a little yeah. Halloween addiction. That's where the 200,000 went. Now we know. I get it. Now we know. <laughs> Dan, final words? Well, thank you very much. I appreciate the opportunity to uh, talk about these things uh, with the other members of our team. And, and we're happy to help. Happy to help. Uh, please make that call. Let us help you. Yeah, right on. All right, and if you haven't already, please subscribe to the Banyan Collective on YouTube as not to miss another Through the Pines podcast. Again, this is Through the Pines, reminding you to use yesterday's dollars to finance tomorrow's dreams. 